0: Going to Haynes because why? Because fifty years ago, Friedman said there was cool shit there. Yeah, that's that's about the
1: the, the extent of it there. Yeah. You are a really great tour guide. <laughs> well, we'll we'll see if it's still there, right? What the town? Well, well I assume Haynes <laughs> is still there, but uh, the the cool shit in Haynes, the museum, the museum. Yeah. Okay. You want you want the book? I guess I should drive. Yeah, once you drive, I'll rustle around and get out. Get out, Freeman.
0: None of us are going to deny what other people are doing. If saying bullshit is somebody's thing, then he says bullshit. If somebody is an ass kicker, then that's what he's going to do on this trip, kick asses. He's going to do it right out front, and nobody's going to have anything to get pissed off about. He can just say, I'm sorry I kicked you in the ass, but I'm not sorry I'm an ass-kicker. That's what I do. I kick people in the ass. Everybody is gonna be what they are. And whatever they are, there's not gonna be anything to apologize about. What we are, we're gonna whale with on this whole trip. Ken Kesey, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. <laughs> It is August, 2014, and one dad, one dude, and two tweens are on the road to find Southeast Oregon. This is some Kick-Ass Oregon History. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindberg. And under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit orhistory.com and click donate. Last spring, we asked our listeners to give us money to help to fund a trip to Southeast Oregon to find some stories to tell for this series. We ran a crowdfunding campaign with an Oregon company, Incited.org. Two of our filmy friends, Mike Vogel and Jose Alberto Venutolo Chirinos, made a video appeal for us. And Some of you coughed up some dough, along with our corporate friends, Eastside Distilling, Rostretto Roasters, and the late Jack London Bar. We raised 110% of our goal in just 18 days, so to those who gave, thank you having raised the funds we got into our honda element and went on a summer road trip around oregon to assist us on the trip we took along a guidebook for the state and our choice of guidebooks presented us with a few problems for you see our guidebook was a bit dated the book we brought along ralph friedman's oregon for the curious the third edition was printed in 1974. So, who, you might ask, is Ralph Friedman? Or, as resident historian Doug King Crispin might say, who the fuck was Ralph Friedman? Possibly the greatest booster Oregon has ever known. To say that Ralph Friedman was a prolific writer is quite an understatement. Friedman wrote 11 books during his career and was working on a 12th at the time of his death in 1995. A journalist and later a professor at Portland Community College and Portland State University, Friedman certainly carried a learned pedigree. But Ralph was always a bit more folksy. He wrote of his own epitaph. My obituary will probably begin Ralph Friedman, Oregon Oldtimer. I wish some backcountry weekly would add. He loved the common folk of Oregon and the United States and the whole wide world and the trees and the waters and the earth and the animals. If there's space for one more line, he never met a good-hearted, imaginative liar he didn't enjoy. So that was our design. We wanted to take Friedman's classic book, Oregon for the Curious, and follow his path and see how much has changed in the last 40 years, or how much it hasn't. Before we left on the trip, we squeezed in a quick sojourn to Astoria. We visited with historian Matt Love and asked
2: him his thoughts on Ralph Friedman. Ralph Friedman is probably the greatest success story of independent publishing in Oregon literary history, even today. Um, his Oregon for the Curious, um, he self-published that because I believe it was turned down by um, publishers, which mirrors my own story. That's why I have such admiration. But he knew he had something, he believed in it, so he really risked everything for this print run. And then the book came out and it exploded. And it went through all these editions. He, he and his wife were a two-person operation in their basement. Mailing and that time, Benford and Mort was the big bookstore in Portland. I think he had a window display in Lippman's, which caused the book to blow up, or Benford and Mort. He had some good, uh, this is before Powell's. Uh, so he, and then he just took his story on the road and sold out of the back of his truck. It, there's no precedent for it then, even today, very few people hustled the way that he hustled to get his story out. And he was making a living from it, which most writers can't do that today either. So as a self-published author and I started my own press, um, Ralph's story, when I came across it and the sheer numbers of books that he was selling was simply astonishing. And that was like in the early 60s, I believe. Those numbers that he sold, like in the first, I think the first six months, he sold 6,000 books of Oregon for the Curious. That would be a smash in the Pacific Northwest today, much less Portland, Oregon. And so there that's, he was an inspiration uh, to me, and I have sort of followed his path in, in direct sales to people. There
0: was something authentic about how Friedman presented Oregon. It was bold and a little rugged. Friedman wasn't writing for a glossy monthly doctor's office magazine that proclaimed the list of the 10 best day hikes or the greatest charcuteries in Portland.
2: This book was not written for specifically a tourist. It was actually written for an Oregonian who didn't know their state or just hadn't, you know, really understood where they were. I mean, people weren't as mobile back then as they are today. And like, Um, and of course like I said before this was before the interstate highway system you know I-5 blew through and changed the entire state of Oregon Uh, you had to meander in 99 you had to do you know there was a lot of things that happened on these roads and so he was writing I think a book I mean Oregonians are the they're the ones who uh, bought that book it wasn't like they were like you said writing for the glossies who are sort of high end people that are looking to go come to Astoria and stay at a boutique hotel Uh, this stuff was gritty you know, it was very. Uh, what is the word? Grounded. I just. I'm, I'm it sh- feels authentic to me. It does because I don't think that guy had a pretentious bone in his body. You know, um, he was married and kind of old school. And I don't know if he had. I don't know enough about him to, to know if he had any aspirations, higher aspirations as a writer, as a, maybe he was a closet novelist, or wanted to write the big book. Uh, we'll never really know that. Um, But he had, he believed in something. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I find it so inspiring that he knew he had something uh, and then he did it. We also brought along with us
0: and consulted some other classic beaver state tomes on our expedition, including Richard Engman's The Oregon Companion, the Oregon Historical Society's Oregon Geographic Names, and Bill Gulick's Roadside History of Oregon. 12 days, a 40-year-old guidebook leading our way, a teen and a tween, purely for your audio entertainment, a 10-year-old Honda Element with either okay tires or straight-up shitty treads, depending on who you ask, we were about to set off on a 1,400-mile journey across the breadth and down the length of our fine state.
1: So, in the history of the West and museums of the West, and I hope we're going to go to a lot of kind of little funky museums, but kind of a barbed wire collection kind of personifies for me the Western museum experience. And I don't know about you, but here we are at the uh, Columbia Gorge Discovery Center in the Dalles, and I think it's a bit of an impressive barbed wire collection.
0: I I disagree completely. I'm hoping that when we get to Baker City, we'll go to the the, uh, museum there. Their barbed wire collection, as I remember it in the 90s, was formidable.
1: This will be the benchmark for all barbed wire. And and it may be low. I'm hoping it's low. Yes,
0: the bar has been set very low. Eastern Oregon calls to mind the furor and pageantry of gold strikes, roaring camps, Gunfire between red men and white men, bloody feuds which pitted stockmen against homesteaders and turned cattlemen and sheepmen into deadly antagonists, legends which have grown tall under the big sky, and the mystery of lost men, lost mines, lost rivers, and lost settlements, swallowed and hidden by and in the vast wasteland. And gone forever from sight, in hills and mountains, seldom seen up close, and rarely explored. For many Portlanders, and Western Oregonians for that matter, Pendleton is the beginning of Eastern Oregon.
1: Pendleton is cute as fuck. They've really run with the old west, old timey feel, and I have to say, they've done it really, really well. The sidewalks have been resurfaced into a faux plank, so that feels pretty Disney, and unfortunately in the process, they destroyed many blocks of original prism glass, which is honestly a damn shame. But other than that, it all feels really authentic and unforced say, unlike Sisters Oregon, with their Old West Gunfighter Saloon Town false Storefront thing. Pendleton is just Old West as fuck, and we honestly like it that way. And of course, when it's not roundup season, the classic tourist attraction of all of Pendleton is the Pendleton Underground Tour. This is the granddaddy of them all it's such a cornerstone of the pendleton tourist experience that they even have the brown cultural attraction highway signs on i-84 as you come into town and these are not an easy affair to conjure up
3: welcome to our speaking The walls are covered in a pinkish tinge. And in this section of the room, we have a beautiful pressed tin tile ceiling. That let the excavators know that this is a very high-end drinking establishment because the walls used to be covered in velvet and pressed tin (coughs) tile is very lavish. So the men gambling at this table oftentimes were very (coughs) important to the city and could not at any cost be caught drinking down here by the sheriff. So they had a security system. They would have a young boy sitting on the street playing marbles. Any time he saw the sheriff, he would yank in the little ring on the sidewalk, attached to those bells, letting the men know that there was a possible raid about to happen. Now, they would evacuate all the alcohol, but the very pugnant odor of what they had been consuming still remained, leaving very substantial evidence that they had been doing something very illegal.
0: In Pendleton, we had an opportunity to visit with the Burger Barons, Adam, Ryan, and Chris. Three men, stout and true, who took it upon themselves to eat and rank as many of Pendleton's hamburgers as they could get their hands on.
1: Now, tell us, Burger Barons, what do you guys do? I am Adam Willard and Burger Baron Adam. <laughs> yeah, burger what's your
4: burger specialty?
3: I, I actually, I am am I'm my I'm the special burger. I eat whatever they bring me. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh,
0: a lot for of some egg. reason,
3: a, a lot, lot of, of egg, spice. A, a lot of jalapenos, habaneros. <laughs> Everybody just tried to make it as hot as they could. <laughs> uh, I
0: that these guys put the word in somebody's ears. So like, look, he loves jalapenos. The more yeah. you can put on them. The yeah. burning hoop. That's yeah. what we call it. Yeah. Yep.
3: I'm Ryan Heath. Uh, my burger was the bacon cheeseburger, because I'm really not that exciting of a person, apparently. But uh, it's delicious, and I love that. What's the deal? Well, my name's Chris Sykes,
0: and I did the mushroom burger around town. And, you know, uh, the mushroom burger is pretty much nobody likes mushrooms. So. We had contacted them before we left Portland, and asked if they could meet us at the best and most historic burger offering in Pendleton the Burger Barons did not disappoint. We stopped to dine at Hamley's.
3: Hamley's was a saddle shop and they were, I mean, there's still people, if you look, um, there's still people that ride Hamley saddles that their grandparents rode and their great grandparents.
0: You can find Hamley's all the way back. Yeah, the Hamley a saddles hand. are a,
3: a big deal and the Hamley's leather company is a huge deal. Um, and that's pretty much from that back wall over there, over, was the Hanley Saddle Company. This, like Adam said, this used to be the Bon Marche. And Fred re- Meyer before that.
0: Was this a Fred Meyer?
3: This was Fred Meyer originally. Oh, I did not yeah.
0: know. Yeah. I shopped in that with my mom they, when we come to Pelton. He's they, made that up.
3: But, they spent <laughs> millions of dollars remodeling this to be the Hanley Steakhouse. And they've added the, the whiskey and all the stuff. But Hanley and Company was just the leather shop. And the saddles. And... They still have people people that are in there making saddles in their leather shop. They have leather products that are made at Hamleys. But for a long time, the the, the brand died out a little bit. It got kind of expensive and things like that. Um, But down in that basement, uh, when we were cleaning it out, we found um, leather markings of some of the cowboys that won the original uh, saddles at the Roundup and their stencils and things like that to make their shaps and other things.
5: We found- started in 1910.
3: Yeah, we found all kinds of maps. We found all kinds of things down there that was really cool. There's a piece out here that's um, really interesting. They, when they started upping their production from like, not really one-offs, but it took one guy a long time to do this. Um, There's a machine out here and it's made from a railroad piece. And we actually carried that up the stairs, a bunch of us. (laughs) Holy God, that thing is heavy. But I talked to a little guy that was over there watching the remodel happen. And that, that building's all brick. And what that's, they'd lay layer after layer of uh, leather in there. And then it's a train axle. And it would come over with heavy, heavy weight below it. And it would roll over and stamp that leather and cut out 50 pieces of leather at one time. Wow. And he said when that would go off, it was upstairs, <laughs> when it would go off, the mortar would shake out of the bricks. It, it would hit so hard, everyone, boom. And they'd do it a few times a day. And they'd cut leather pieces out like that. So, the Hamleys, Hamleys Leather Company is really where it all started. They bought the brand, the name, the company, and everything, and expanded it into what it is today. And, you know, I, we were talking this about is pretty it. Awesome in here. Max yeah. won, like, for our best burger. but Not if my you're best burger. burger. <laughs> Cadillac Jack Our best burger. But if you're going to come somewhere cool, I mm. mean, this is probably the coolest place you're gonna come.
0: I mean to, visually. If you look around at all the light fixtures, the, the big bowl hanging up, I mean copper this ceilings. Is, this
5: is Western Pendleton, the last you know, this is well, it. Out yeah. you're out west, you know. They I mean. went into
3: they went into Montana, they went in um, South Dakota, they went all over. We'll take you upstairs later. Um, and they got these back bars. These are all original back bars. And they're the one upstairs That's I think beautiful. is like a hundred years old. Uh, When they got it, they had to patch a bunch of stuff because it had bullet holes in it. And that one came out of Montana.
1: Note to our listeners, never ever patch bullet holes in your bats. Leave them in there. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. who would patch a bullet
4: hole? (laughs) That's yours.
0: The manager of Hamley's offered us a tour of the two private bars and event spaces on the second floor which included such memorable accoutrements as Bordello-esque oil paintings of buxom beauties in bustiers and stockings, a gargantuan polar bear rug complete with head, and chandeliers that formerly appointed the Stardust in Las Vegas. While Hamley's The Saddlery is a time-honored Oregon tradition, the restaurant and saloon is pretend history. The various trappings are old, but a shit ton of it was aged in other locations and brought into the restaurant in more modern times. It is impressive as fuck, and absolutely a must-see and eat in Pendleton. The burgers are great. Having dined in such Western style, we continued on our trek. A very unique historical organization is just outside of Pendleton. On the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, just behind the Wild Horse Casino, is the Tomasklicht Cultural Institute. It is a very different type of presentation, with a little Disneyland thrown into the mix. It's a raw message. And the curators of the museum have attempted to tell an underrepresented interpretation of Oregon history. In addition to native artifacts, thought provoking quotes are displayed throughout the exhibits, quotes that are contrary or even combative to the accepted narrative of Oregon history. Negotiations of the treaties between the native peoples and the federal government are given much real estate. In the spring of 1855, a treaty council was called to contain the native peoples on a shitty little reservation. 1,500 Nez Perce came to the council in full regalia. At a full gallop, they came in beating drums, brandishing shields, and firing guns. 400 Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Wallas followed suit. More than 5,000 tribal peoples attended. Governor Isaac Stevens of Washington told the assembled Indians What shall we do at this council? We want you and ourselves to agree upon tracts of land where you shall live. The governor's truer intentions were revealed in another quote. I confidently expect to accomplish the whole business, extinguishing the Indian title to every acre of land in the territory. The treaty gave us nothing. All we did with the treaty was reserve our rights. We always had those rights long before the white men ever came. If your mothers were here in this country who gave you birth and suckled you, and while you were suckling, some person came and took away your mother and left you alone and sold your mother, how would you feel then? This is our mother, this country. Stick us and a theme we were to see more of as we continued into a bona fide Oregon Trail territory. Can you prevent the whites from coming? No. Like the grasshoppers on the plains, some years there will be more come than others. You cannot stop them. Our chief cannot stop them. We cannot stop them. General Joe Palmer. So if you find yourself enjoying the video poker machines at the Wild Horse Casino, do yourself a favor and stop by the Cultural Institute and experience a lesser-known interpretation of Oregon history. Eastern Oregon Museum, four blocks north of U.S. 30, has surrey with fringe on top, buggies, horse-drawn sleighs that carried mail, a complete blacksmith shop, and much more of the memorabilia of eastern Oregon. Haynes apparently closes down on Tuesdays. The junk store, the Haynes Steakhouse, as recommended by the Burger Barons, and other concerns in town were all closed when we arrived on Tuesday. We lunched on some mediocre Caesar salads in a little tavern that was open, the only spot doing business on Tuesday, and we drove to the Eastern Oregon History Museum. But we saw that it, too, was closed. However, she flies on her own wings, baby, and as fate would have it, the treasurer of the museum was in doing some bookwork, And she gave us a personal guided tour of this truly unique, quintessentially Oregon museum and proved she had a bit of Oregon history herself. That's
4: wonderful. Well, thanks so again. I'm so much glad for you us
0: were the here when <laughs> we okay.
1: wandered by.
4: What's your name? Mary Ryder. Ma-
1: Mary Ryder, uh-huh. I'm Doug. Doug, nice to meet you. Doug Crispin. That's Crispin. Yeah.
4: Uh, I'm a, a Lenig and we've been here 152 years now, or something like, no, wow. 51 years.
0: Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: And I'm probably within five miles where my great grandfather settled.
0: That's amazing. Wow.
4: And the my ranch, which is what my great grandfather right. had as one of his, ranches, because he had strung for about 10 miles. Um, I have a third nephew, something. Anyway, three know, generations yeah. on down, yeah. Yeah. running it now. Wow, that's
0: so great. So still in the family.
4: Yes, and wow. we're a and, 150 year old farm.
0: Wow. What, do you, what do you farm?
4: Uh, he raises a lot of hay, mm-hmm. a few cows, and a small patch of wheat.
1: Nice, uh, excellent. This oh, is great. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for showing us around, especially on your day off. So,
0: 12.4 miles. Baker, a key passage on the old Oregon Trail. Born of the gold rush in the 1860s, Baker managed to survive the death of a 100 boom camps by becoming the county seat, a freighting center, and a railroad center. Ten-story Baker Hotel is the tallest building east of the Cascades. It has had more owners than a poker chip at an all-night game. One stop that wasn't afforded any ink by Friedman was the Baker Heritage Museum, a collection of hodgepodge, old-timey things. We think it's worth a visit. Exhibits are centered around a primary theme set in a specified time period, say, A doctor's office in the early 20th century, or a cattle rancher's operation, or a Chinese businessman's environs. The interpretation is fine, but there's nothing that pushes contemplation, nothing at all that is antagonistic or challenging even. Very cute and safe and unoffensive, different than, say, the Temosculate Cultural Institute. But if you don't go, then you don't get to see the paint-your-wagon diorama. It's No Name City.
6: You want to see sin of the wickedest kind? Here it is. You want to see virtue left behind? Here it is.
0: Sodom was vice and vice versa. You want to see where the vice is worser? Here it is. I mean, here it is. You want to live life in the rottenest way, here it is. Women and whiskey,
5: night and day, here it is. You want to embrace the golden calf, ankle and thigh and upper half, here it is. I
6: mean, here it is. No-name city, no-name city, the Lord don't like it, here No Name City, No Name City, your reckoning day
7: is near. No Name City, No Name City. The late
0: 1960s film Paint Your Wagon is offered quite a significant bit of real estate in the Baker Heritage Museum. And just that an exhibit to such a monstrosity of Oregon celluloid is almost worth the visit alone, this feature, noted as being long on running time and short on audience approval, ought to be regarded as a mere footnote of Oregon cinematic history if it wasn't for a drunken Lee Marvin and a singing Clint Eastwood. That's right. Not only does Mr. Chairtalker himself take a break from his Sergio Leone-killing-motherfuckers cinematic career, but during said respite, he sings like a goddamn dirty hippie about talking... To trees.
7: I talk to the
0: trees, but they don't listen to me.
7: I talk to the stars, but they never hear me. The breeze hasn't time.
0: Made for 18 million in 1969, Paint Your Wagon was just too goddamn big. I mean, The Eagle Cap Wilderness is the backdrop. See what we mean? An entire town was built for the film, No Name City, with that set costing over $2 million alone. The closest hotel was 60 miles away, 60 miles of mountain road. And they had an army of dirty hippies as extras. Hippies got to eat too, man. The cast and crew numbered about 700 people.
1: So what's your name? David. David, where are you from, David? Medford, Oregon. Medford, you saw Paint Your Wagon, yeah? Yeah, I did. What'd you think of it? Oh, it's been so long ago, it was, it was okay. I really can't remember, but uh, pretty impressive. Know, had good stars in it. Yeah, Clint Eastwood Sings. Yeah, Lee per- Marvin. They got Im- the one where Lee Marvin got drunk and, and hit his horse, knocked him out. Pretty impressive diorama
8: here. Yeah it is. Now was this built for the movie?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I, it seems like it was. I don't know if they did a a small. Well, yes, what you know, film I'm wondering down if they the, did this to kind of get yeah, an idea how they were uh, going to lay it out. Yeah. The, I think this is probably the best memorial to paint your wagon that was ever done. <laughs> yeah, right. And while you're Thanks, David. To me,
7: I suddenly see them come true.
0: But it wasn't just the big budget that crashed the film. As Roger Ebert pointed out, It has the notoriety of being the first big-budget musical to earn an M rating rather than a G rating that usually graced the genre's contemporaries. Ebert speculates that this was because the film featured a prairie schooner packed with Parisian prostitutes, a few incredibly mild swears, and a three-way marriage between Lee Marvin, Clint Eastwood, and Gene Seberg. I know. Pretty racy, huh? The New York Times didn't exactly give the film a glowing review either. While noting that scenes were framed in some of Oregon's most spectacular mountain greenery, the review called the film amiable and felt that it didn't really take itself seriously and not in a good way. The score was attributed as being out of touch with 1969 society and indeed, elevator stuff. The Oregonian's reviewer was not terribly kind either. Ted Mahar described Eastwood as simply a big clump of matter in front of the camera. Seberg's dubbed singing voice was called pathetic. And all in all, he calls the film overly big, but underly substantial something like a two-ton marshmallow. The scenic Oregon backdrop, however, was regarded rather highly. Finally, there, along the wall, at the Baker Heritage Museum, we were able to see Andy's much touted and much favored barbed wire collection. And while at first a little bit of a letdown, after some keen observation, it did not
1: disappoint.
0: Andy explains.
1: Well, Andy, uh, you have certainly I talk a big game. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty damn extensive barbed wire collection. It's formidable. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, A good, at least
0: three times the size of any collection we've seen so far.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to photograph it for... And the
0: great thing is that they're all of the different types, with a few exceptions, are labeled. Yeah. So, for instance, there's the 173 Mac alternate cut.
1: Can you describe it, please?
0: The, the 173 Mac alternate cut is uh, a, a single strand wrapped by smaller strands in about 4-inch increments. Unlike the 334, the Kelly single line, which appears to be um, just uh, spikes attached to a
1: single thread You do pretty good at describing, audially, some uh, barbed wire, Mr. Lindbergh. Well, I have a
0: lot of experience interpreting poorly worded history.
1: Fuck you.
0: Eleven miles north of halfway, the tottering, crumbling remains of cornucopia, out of whose 30 miles of underground workings came more than half of Oregon's gold output. Founded in 1885, the town was going strong until October 31, 1941, when the mines were suddenly closed. Within 24 hours, practically all the 700 inhabitants pulled out. Despite its disintegrating, cornucopia is still the largest ghost town in Oregon. Camp under the pines on the banks of Pine Creek and fish in the bouncy stream. Or in my case, stand in the bouncy stream.
1: Cornucopia means a horn of plenty, right? a mining town at 4700 feet cornucopia was birthed in the 1880s as a spot in the walala mountains to mine gold in 1885 description allowed cornucopia one nice frame house and many tent and log cabins built rather hastily to accommodate the first rush. The town can boast five saloons, one store, two restaurants, blacksmith shop, barber shop, butcher shop, and a livery stable. Also a lodging house, which, while neatly kept for a young town, is hardly patronized enough as the traveling class in such camps objects seriously to too close confinement and prefers camp life. Kind of like us, dear ass-kickers. Kind of like us. The real boom years at Cornucopia were 1884 to 1886. Tents were scattered across the mountain, and 800 prospectors and laborers dotted the mountain like ants. Mines with names like the Mayflower, the White Elephant, the Wild Irishman, and Queen of the West flavored those 30 miles of underground tracks. The last chance mine was all the way up the mountain at 7,000 feet. Cornucopia pretty much went bust in World War II, with activity fluctuating wildly in the ensuing decades. At times, the mines were the largest producers of gold and silver in Oregon. Cornucopia found us walking through a
0: deserted ghost town, the building still visible through the trees. A handy reminder from the Baker County Sheriff that the place was indeed private property and that no trespassing was allowed. Cornucopia could be a pretty rough place. In 1886, a few of the miners were none too pleased with the deputy clerk at Cornucopia, one Mr. Mitchell, The miners claimed the clerk had been swindling them and decided that Mitchell should skedaddle. He was served with written notice to leave by November 28th, and to make sure the message was clear, a hangman's noose was placed over his door. Not taking the message too seriously, Mitchell just kept on going about his tasks. On the afternoon of the 28th, while working at his desk, Mitchell was shot through the arm by an unknown assailant who had fired through the clerk's window. Call it a stern warning from the Human Resources Department, cornucopia style.
2: Whoa!
5: Hey! Don't touch me! Don't touch me! Hey! Hey! Don't touch me! Don't touch me! Hey! Oh! Don't touch me!
0: and most modern city on the eastern Oregon border.
1: Ontario's motto is Where Oregon Begins. It's just a passing through place where Oregon begins, meaning that you are in this political creation just because you left that last political creation, Idaho. It's a collection of dwellings noteworthy because there just aren't that many other dwellings for quite some time as you're passing through. Friedman even hints at that in 1974, in another section of Oregon for the Curious, he calls Ontario the glittering showcase of the Snake River country, but I think he's just being charitable and there is indeed electricity. We stayed at the Motel 6. Mr. Patel ran a very clean spot there, and the free shitty coffee in the morning was very much appreciated. Motel 6 as a transitory town is such a bizarre experience. There was a picnic table in a parking lot across the street. Drinking our early morning shitty coffee as the children slept, we would watch fellow boarders swiftly pack up their bags, check out, and pop into their cars to drive fast to their real destination. Ontario was never their end point. It was just a cheap, available bed the night before, too late to keep pushing on. We drank our coffee, staring into the bottom of our styrofoam cups as the other lodgers moved on, enjoying the ability to just sit and drink and watch the morning sun move higher in the sky. It was strange to watch them all scatter, considering how far our host, Mr. Patel, had come to stay in Ontario. How long have you been in Ontario? Ontario, I've been five years. Okay. And what
6: kind of business do you do in Ontario? Ontario, just hotel, motel business. I mean, what what type of uh, customers do you see? Mostly highway location, lots of workers, lots of construction company, lots of uh, natural resources in this area, lots of gear, lots of gold, lots of steam. So we're getting lots of electricity from that resources. Mm-hmm. And we came from India, which is a small village, there is no school. My uncle somehow managed to go to school in nineteen sixties. He came in America in nineteen sixty three and we had a like 30, 40 engineer in Seattle area. If we were back at home, nobody have education. So be still working in a farm and using a bull. We don't have a tractor, still.
4: Wow.
6: Yeah. So it's totally different. Yeah. Here, life better, we have opportunity, all kind. Look at our, our community, our kids. They're like, B is not acceptable in a school. Has to be A, A minus, B not acceptable. So they all do very good in school. My wife, I did go to school. My kid is, he's bioengineer. And when he went to the school he didn't he, did, he only read once, he don't do study. And he does my daughter used to get jealous because he had to do homework and she had to read and do all the homework and he didn't have to do it. I came here and that's how I started. I started nursing disease. I had to make a living. You know, I didn't apply I went to nursing home and clean the toilet. I had to bring the bread on the table, you know, pay my rent and everything. But that wasn't for my lifetime. It's only until I speak a little bit more English and do something better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my nephew, lots of my nephew, all cousins, they all did the same thing. They all mostly, my, we had about well, maybe 60 engineers in our family all together. My wife and I only don't have education, but we're doing good. Yeah, Yeah, yeah
1: we're
6: yeah, doing definitely, good. Definitely. You know, we were wow. considered work for somebody else, but we had a better, good life. We gave a good education to the children. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, good. Benjamin was saying, This is you're going to be there for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah,
6: yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's great. But you said, I love to learn. But I, I cannot learn from the books. I watch TV. I watch the show or movie. And uh, I, I traveled last year to the uh, Glacier Park. My friend's son had their office. Can you come with me? Because that's a big broken language. I went there. Then every spot I see the Indian, native Indian, they had a, like a site, they had a, all the battleground. I stop and read. Mm-hmm. I want to see what happened like 200 years ago. You so know, so all
1: the heritage markers.
6: Heritage, yeah. yeah. Every time they had that sign, you know, I I stop and we're doing the same thing, but here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there were lots of spots you see along the freeway, in those sites say, say, what the sign says, something like a battleground or some kind of history sign. You know, we stop and read. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, crazy. but crazy. U.S. history. Is, <laughs> it's good. It's not like India. India has like 5,000 years. You know. Yeah. And if I look at the Indian history. Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the way to the Iraq. One time, that was part of the India. Yeah, if you go back many years ago, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, there'd be a lot more uh, heritage, yeah, heritage yeah, markers yeah, in yeah, India. Yeah,
6: yeah. <laughs> even even look at India, Pakistan wasn't in Pakistan until 1948. That was just
0: part of. The... Besides the swimming pool at the Motel Six, there just isn't much to do in Ontario itself. Well, that is, unless you like tater tots. Ida invented the tater tot in 1954. That's right. Before 1954, there were no potato barrels or spud puppies or whatever the fuck they call tater tots when you can't use that trademarked tater tot name. Or Ida invented that parcel of potatoey perfection. Tater tots, as the Orida press release states, are made from excess potato slivers left over from making french fries. So there you go. That shit's sustainable. When you're eating a tater tot, you're really doing a good thing for Mother Earth. And good for Oregon's economy, too. We had a chance to chat with Tim Samuels, HR plant manager for the Ontario Orida facility about tater tots. On the 60th anniversary of the birth
5: of the tot, how are tater tots made? How do you go from a potato to a tater tot?
8: Well, how the uh, potatoes go from um, get into tater tots, Doug, is uh, they're first harvested and then they're brought on site. And as the potatoes are needed for processing, they're received, which means they're checked in for quality purposes and then they're conveyed into the process. Um, I want to point out that no good potato goes to waste. The potatoes are graded, sorted, and sized, and the larger potatoes are separated from, from the group and used on the French fry lines. The small potatoes are peewees, and pieces from the fry line potatoes are then sent to a dicer to get a more uniform size. Uh, after that, the potatoes are washed peeled using high-pressure steam and automated brushes, and then they're trimmed and cut. From there, they proceed to a blancher that softens the potatoes, and then they go through another quality check, and their quality check's done throughout this whole process at different points. Um, from the blancher, the potatoes go through an electronic sorter where any defects, such as dark spots, etc., are removed automatically. And then the potatoes are quickly cooled down to develop the desired fluffy texture you get inside of a tater tot. Um, after the cooling process, the dry ingredients are added, and they go to a former. And the former takes the potatoes, which are kind of in the form of a mashed potato situation, um, um, and then they're extruded into forms, and they make made it to the shape of a tater tot. Um, after the former, they go right to the fryer. Once they go through the fryer, they go into a freezer tunnel immediately where they're quickly frozen. And after that, they go to packaging where they're put in different bags and, and different sizes. Um, another quality check is done, a final quality check is done at that point. And then the tater tots are finally packaged in cases and conveyed, conveyed to a frozen storage facility to await shipment to a grocery store near you.
5: And how many pounds of tater tots are produced annually at the Ontario facility?
8: Annually at the, uh, at the facility here, we produce about 75 million pounds of tater tots a year, give or take a few. Um, overall, we produce between 600 to 650 million pounds of product annually.
0: 75 million pounds. That is a crazy number. So how many tater tots is that? We sent the kids to account a two pound Orida tater tot bag to find out. Just for you.
2: One <laughs> two. I've <laughs> watched two, three.
7: Four.
4: Five.
6: Six
7: seven
5: 70,
0: So, a two-pound bag, 97 tots per bag, is 48.5 tots per pound. Using mathematics, that gives us over three-and-a-half Billion tater tots made right here in Oregon, baby. Tim told us a little more about Orida in Oregon.
5: And then, why did Orida choose Ontario as a location for your industry back in, I guess it would be back in the
8: 50s, yeah? Yes, it was actually in the 50s, and that's where the uh, original founders were from. They were from the uh, Oregon, Idaho area. Uh, It was not only that they were from the area, but it was also the proximity to raw ingredients were the two main reasons for uh, for choosing Ontario.
5: And then how many people are employed at the facility?
8: Um, Currently at the facility, we have employed about 775 people, uh, which include about 710 hourly people, 42 salary, and we also have a research and development department here on site, which goes into that number.
5: And then do you have a sense of how many other jobs are created in the region uh, from, from what you guys do there at Arida?
8: Yeah, Doug, I couldn't put a direct number to it, but I can tell you that jobs that are directly related um, to our, to our facility are the good people that grow, harvest, store, and distribute our products by both rail and truck and the retailers that sell our products and all the people within those organizations, such as Albertsons and Winco and places like that.
5: So any sense on uh, what kind of impact the ride has had on the Oregon economy?
8: Um, Well, outside of paying our taxes to the city and and the state of Oregon, we provide stable, good-paying jobs for the people of the greater Treasure Valley area here.
0: There you have it almost everything you ever wanted to know about tater tots except for the lingering question is the tater tot portland's signature dish
1: this is resident historian doug kane crispin and i'm sitting down at the limelight in southeast portland with dave of dave knows and we're eating some uh delicious tater tots and dave you know you had a really interesting point we were chatting one day where you said you really thought that tater tots were the signature Portland food? Why is that? And you know everything about Portland. So why do you think tater tots are the signature Portland food? Well, I don't know. I don't know where I came up with that or why I was saying that. I don't remember saying that, but I'm sure I said it.
0: We also checked in with food historian Heather Art Anderson, author of Portland, a Food Biography.
1: So is the tater tot the signature dish of Portland? No, it's not.
0: Tim's down, though, although on a larger
5: scale. And and finally, Tim, uh, maybe this question is more appropriate for you, but Ashley's brand manager, you as well. Uh, you know, we were having a discussion the other night uh, with some friends and, and trying to really kind of come up with we were talking specifically about Portland, but we can extend it out to Oregon as well. It's kind of signature dishes. And over and over again, we kept coming up with tater tot is really kind of the signature Oregon dish. Tim, would you agree with that?
8: Yeah, I would. Based, you know, even going back to the original name, the all-rider. I mean, uh, certainly we rely on Oregon and, as well as Idaho for the raw raw materials to get our product. But, uh, yeah, I would definitely associate it with, with Oregon.
0: The final word, askickers, Kickers, straight from Ontario. And of course, a stop in Ontario would not be complete without a visit to the infamous Miss Sally's. Next door to Ontario is the little town of Nyssa. Longtime listeners of this survey will recall that this strip club, Miss Sally's, was fundamental in establishing our free speech legacy that we have today in the Beaver State the Oregon Supreme Court decided that unpopular forms of expression were to be decidedly protected by the Oregon state constitution. When the owners of Miss Sally's were arrested for violating city ordinances due to one of their naked dancers' apparently lewd behavior, our rights to write, speak, or broadcast whatever the fuck we want were strengthened. As podcasters of Oregon history, we knew we would be remiss if we didn't visit this historically important location in our state's heritage. And we're fine with naked
1: people, too. Only, Miss Sally's was no longer there. Bob's Steak and Spirits, under the motto, Where Friends Meet, now occupied this location of Oregon freedom. A sports pub-themed affair, Bob's might fit appropriately under the family-friendly qualifier. Needless to say, pairs of bare boobies, or even a singular naked boob at that, were not in attendance. Uh, my name's Doug. I do a history podcast called Kick-Ass Oregon History. And what's your name? My name is Travis. And Travis, you know about Miss Sally's, right? Which was Yes, here I in do. Town. What, what was it like? What was the club like? Uh,
7: Well, it was, I guess you'd say, like a stripper club, you know? There was, oh, I don't know, half a dozen, I think, or maybe eight different gals that all danced there. Uh, they was all fairly attractive gals. Were they from town, or did they come in No, from- I think they was brought in from around Eugene area.
1: If I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So then they just stayed here in town while they were dancing. Yes.
7: It, the gal that owned Miss Sally's, she also owned the motel down there. So she boarded them at the motel Okay. okay. and nobody else ever was allowed to stay there while they was staying there, you know? Gotcha. So she protected them pretty good too.
1: You know what time, uh, what year it closed around?
7: Oh my Lord. Uh... I don't. It's ten been, years
1: ago or something.
7: You know, I don't know if it's been that long. It may have though. You know, time flies. Sure, sure. Exactly. But uh, yeah, it's been several years. I know that. But it was the
1: only strip club in town, and it's there's none now, huh?
7: No, and there hasn't been since. I know there was a lot of people that protested for a while. They marched up and down the sidewalk here, but that they done it for almost a whole year. Uh, no good it didn't do them no good but then I don't know what happened I don't know if the city ordinances changed or what but they wound up having to go eventually you know and I don't know if they went back to where they was from or what happened you know I heard they was trying to find a place in Ontario and fail but nothing ever become of it that I know of
1: well, thanks a lot, Travis. I appreciate yeah, you it. Bet. You bet. Have, have a good great day. day. We had a lovely dinner at Bob's Steak and Fries, but I must say, for a location about as close to the Mecca of the freshest tater tots on earth, the tots we dined upon were quite, quite dry. I bet you they were really potato barrels.
7: nothing in
5: my
4: brain
7: that's what people say mm-hmm. that's what people say mm-hmm. i go on too many
5: dates
0: <laughs> but i can't make them stay thank you for listening that's what say. and be on the lookout for future podcasts from say. orhistory.com we hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass oregon history Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindberg. Citations are available on request. Kickass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at KickassOregonHistory. Oregon History. Want more kick ass Oregon history in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. He's liable to use your scraps to make tater tots. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
7: Apple, Kostyro Roasters, place Tori Navanzalo, Bill Landis, Tony Tansen, Austin yeah. Marilyn Lindbergh, Alex Ward, Eric White, Doug Hath- Hound, Halloway, <laughs> Joshua Fisher, Jim Corvell. Roman Mars, Emily Loss, John- Ross Johnson, Dan Zalco, Don
4: Chiselson, <laughs> Lizzie Katzen,
7: Bever- Beverly Shunover, L- Jim Keys, Brock Dittus, Allison Carter, Tristan Lemons, dallying Daly, Robert Crisp. Carol Foster, John Dyler, Louis Salloway, Rebecca Woodsmith, Heather Gogan, John Quill Master, Peter Lindbergh, Mike Vogel, Dave Lindbergh, Gary Lindbergh, William Regan, Tammy Parr, Todd Dixon, Heather Arnett Anderson, Peter Archer, Todd
4: Cox,
1: is that really it? Huh? Where's Mike Motherfucking Wyatt? That's the gap for you, right? <laughs> And Mike motherfucking
4: Wyatt.
0: ORHistory.com